Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. My name's Bob. <laughs> Just to confirm, we don't have Bob from House by the Cemetery here. He's, he's here in spirit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that That's my actual voice this week. My voice is going, so it might sound a little shit in points. It is but, a little um, bit. But, I don't know, it might make me sound sexier. Who knows? L- let me know in the comments. So this week, uh, we are back talking about more than one film, because uh, we just love cramming it all in, don't we, recently? But it's more exciting. I think it's more exciting discussing more than one film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's logical that we would talk about um, a series of films together. Yeah. Like I said last week, I, I certainly would not bore people to death with an hour and a half chat about The Final Destination. It'd be shit. So we'll put it all together. Now these these are three individually great films yeah. uh, that follow a, a similar theme. Uh, essentially, they're they're not um, they're, they're more like spiritual trilogy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Rather than a direct trilogy or, or direct sequels to the original film. But we wanted to put them together because as a collective, they're great. You know, yeah. um, and in terms of Lucio Fulci's work. Many would say, including us, it's his best work. Yeah. So, obviously, we spoke about uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters previously on the podcast. We did the franchise as a whole. Um, Lucio Fulci, of course, directed the first two films. Uh, and today, we are talking about Fulci's The Gates of Hell trilogy. Um, what is The Gates of Hell trilogy? Um, so, The Gates of Hell trilogy is... Catriona McCall screaming. Yeah, Catriona McCall. having all sorts of insects and animals thrown at her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, essentially. Um, well, it's it's three loosely tied together films based around a very similar uh, premise. Apart from House by the Cemetery, <laughs> which goes a little different. Um, but it, it's... Essentially works influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, the first two, City of the Living Dead and The Beyond, deal directly with the idea of Hell's Gates being opened. Um, and then House by the Cemetery takes a different turn and it's more a crazed it's doctor, like a isn't it? It's, it's more reverse, slasher. It's like a reverse home invasion film. Yeah. Yeah, as in no one's breaking into the house. It's already there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, um, but I think with, with these films, um, they they loosely touch on the zombie, uh, subgenre. If you may recall, on our top ten zombie films episode, we actually discussed the Beyond in that list. Yes. Um. So yeah. It, well, the Beyond is a mashup of loads. Of yeah, genres. And, and and that's what I was gonna say. It's you know it's primarily. If anyone wants to say what type of film is this, I'd either say super. What films are these? Should I say? I'd either say supernatural or zombie films. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're well within the supernatural genre, um, whereas you know some of Lucio Fulci's other works are slashes or giallos, uh, which are based in reality. These are very much supernatural. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole idea of the gates of hell being opened is very supernatural. I I only learned this about Fulci yesterday, but uh, I hear he's a little, uh, how would I say it in Italy, problematic? 
Okay, that was French. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, what's what's it in Italy? In, in Italian? Well, I don't know the Italian for problematic. You, uh, how you just, would, how would you Italian, just problematic in a French accent? How would Italian say it in in, in Italian accent? Problematica. That's the exact same as how I said <laughs> no, it. No, you're problem problematic. My voice is going. That's what it is. Problematico. Okay. Uh, yeah. We, we, <laughs> I only learned how yesterday he's a little dodgy. Yeah, he's got the Hitchcocks about him, I think. Oh my um, God. <laughs> he's, he, he's... If anyone's listened to our podcast and haven't heard of Hitchcock, they probably shouldn't be listening to our podcast. But if they haven't, then that sounded a little... Uh, the Hitchcocks. Uh, no, <laughs> he, um, he was a bit harsh on his actresses in particular. Um, and... There's one actress in particular who's in all three of these films, uh, but he seemed to treat her nicer than the others. Yeah. Um, an English actress, Catriona McCall, um, who's it was a bit of a, a cult film legend, really. Um, she was in a few low budgety films, but this is probably the film, the films that she's most famous for. Um, he seemed to take a liking to her and treated her nicer than he did the other actresses. Uh, he could be quite mean, um, quite harsh, um, took <clears throat> pleasure in, a, a sort of masochistic pleasure in putting his actors, and particularly the women, uh, through the ringer, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, just, uh, you know, in case anyone else is aware of that before I was, we're obviously, you know, a big supporter of his work and do not endorse women being treated like shit on film sets. No, no, no. But getting into the films, starting with City of the Living Dead, released in 1980, also known as The Gates of Hell. Um, Obviously, all three of these are directed by Fauci and uh, couldn't get a budget or a gross for this one. So straight into the trivia, Fauci always carried around a bag with his trademark pipe and tobacco. One day on set, he reached into his bag and found a handful of maggots, which had been used earlier in the film, uh, to early in the film to film the scene with the maggots blowing in through a window. The perpetrator of this prank is rumored to be Christopher George, the film's lead actor, who did not get along well with Fauci. <laughs> it sounds like he's pissed everyone off. <laughs> yeah, I think Christopher George was very old school. Uh, he must have... I mean, he died in 83, which is mm-hmm. only three years after this film came out. Um, and I think he was in his 50s or 60s at that point. So very much an old-school film actor uh, who maybe didn't appreciate Lucia Fulci's way of directing. No. The scene where the window uh, opens wide and lots of maggots fly in was filmed with the help of two wind machines and 22 pounds of actual maggots. Yeah, yeah, this this is probably, in terms of trivia, the biggest scene of the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, no one involved enjoyed uh, filming the scene apart from Fulci, uh, which is probably where the bitterness comes from. Uh, even Catriona, who Fulci liked, uh, got the um, short end of the stick. And uh, I think filming took a little longer than it really should have. Yeah. And Fulci was enjoying it. Every second of watching them squirm with all these maggots flying at them. Yeah. I'm assuming Christopher George, being old school, would have expected some sort of uh, double and yeah. not have to play the scene himself. Potentially that's where that sort of um, 
anger lies. Yeah, it is a saying that you got away without seeing. I mean, it looks great now, but that, that is crazy. Because that, that would never happen in a film these days. Well, you wouldn't. Eat, well, I suppose low budget films you would, but. You know, it would probably be CGI. Proper act. Well, it would probably be CGI actually. Yeah, yeah, it's quite cruel to the maggots, isn't it? Actually, mm. but I mean, these these films are very heavy on practical effects, and that is what makes them so great. Uh, it it really, it, it takes a lot to bother me with films, but City of Living Dead in particular has a scene that makes me feel physically sick every time I watch it. Oh yeah, well, one thing for all three of these films, um, apart from a, a few. Um, iffy moments is that the practical effects are fantastic yeah really fantastic and it goes all out you know it, it's their proper gore fests yeah so two of these are actually on the video nasties dpp list uh the two being the beyond and house by the cemetery so you living dead didn't quite make it on there which shocking was it not on the long that's, list that's fucking it may be not, oh, it may have been on the long not list on the long list but on the 72 the, the 72 yeah. films yeah it's... the long list is like huge yeah um, but the shortlist, yeah, of actual band. Uh, each German release was banned over the course of over 20 years. <laughs> the film was first released on video with the title A Zombie Hung on the Bell Rope. That's good. <laughs> I like that. In 1982. Uh, and it was banned in 1986 and the second video with the title A Dead Body Hung on the Bell Rope was released with several cuts. Even that version was banned in 1988, and the final version was released with the title of Corpse Hung on the Bell Rope, heavily cut without any gory scenes left. Rumours say the video distributors actually designed a new video release called A Cadaver Hung on the Bell Rope, of course, uh, in case this third version got banned again. Uh, surprisingly, this third version was also banned in 2001. Okay, Bell Rope isn't quite right, but it's a good title. <laughs> I don't get what it's keep just changing Hung on the Bell Rope with the first yeah, bed. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> it already had two really great names. Um, obviously, I think City of the Living Dead's a bit better than Gates of Hell. I think Gates of Hell works as a whole for the trilogy, but... Yeah, yeah, if, if anything, The Beyond should be called Gates of Hell. Yeah. Um, kind of. Um... Yeah, yeah, Gates of Hell doesn't work. City, City of the Living Dead, yeah, it's all right. People might mistake it for a uh, Night of the Living Dead. I think that's exactly sequel. what they were going for. I feel for. like, that's, yeah, that is exactly what they were going for. Future director Michelle Suave uh, was originally up for the role of Bob. However, Forgy changed his mind and decided to cast Giovanni Lombardo Radis instead. Uh, so Suave was given a smaller role. In one of the best scenes of the film, though. Yeah, Suave was... Um, he went on to direct Cemetery Man, um, a really underrated slasher, Stage Frights. Did um, he do The Church? He did The Church, yeah. Yeah, it's a good film. Yeah. Um, did he also... I think he also starred in Demons. He was in Demons, yeah. He was in De briefly. Yeah. And then, obviously, um, Giovanni Lambert, Lombardo Radice... Um, he's a bit of a Italian cult figure, yes. isn't he? Yeah. Um, he was in Cannibal Fear Rocks. He was in Stage Fright as well. Um, he was in Cannibal Apocalypse. Um, he's been in loads of Italian horror films. When theatrically released in the United States in 1983, the original title was Twilight of the Dead. 
Oh, for God's sake, how many fucking titles <laughs> is this film's need? Due to the fact that both the title and poster art were derivative of Dawn of the Dead, United Film Distribution Company filed a cease and desist order against motion picture marketing. Posters and prints of the movie bearing the title Twilight of the Dead were pulled, altered and sent back out with a new title, Gates of Hell. Twilight of the Dead is shit. That is a really shit name. Maybe it's been tainted by the Twilight films. Maybe. <laughs> Whenever we hear Twilight, we just think <laughs> vampires. The character, Bob, played by uh, Radice, was originally intended to be a hunchback. However, he decided uh, the actor decided against wearing the hump that was made for him and instead portrayed the character having a stiff, lurching gait. Gate? G-A-I-T. Oh. The, Bob's the uh, suspicious character, isn't he? <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's your typical weirdo, though, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, I think adding the hunchback may have been a bit much. Like, we already know he's weird. Yeah. Yeah, he's wide-eyed, uh, very pale, incredibly sweaty, um, always looks very suspicious. Um, which I don't, I don't know why. I'm like, and we know he did something to poor little Am Ross. Poor don't little Am Ross. Um, <laughs> but it it's weird that I don't know in any other film he would have been a red herring, but we know this is about you know the gates of hell being <laughs> open. So I don't, I don't understand why he had to be so weird. He gets killed by a fucking human being. He doesn't even get killed by one of the undead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually gets murdered. <laughs> Like the kid, well, I say kid, like the full-grown adult playing a kid at the start of um, Friday the 13th Part 5. Yeah. Not even killed by a proper <laughs> film killer. Just some angry guy. Fulci has cameos in all three of these films. In this one, he is the pathologist at the crime scene who examines Emily's dead body. Come on, Hitchcock. I know, yeah. He, he yeah, really, he's definitely trying to be yeah. Hitchcock. There, there are a ton of explanations for how the end took the shape it did, and neither Fulci uh, nor Dodano Sacchetti uh, was ever of any help straightening it out. Some say the editor spilled coffee on the footage of the original ending, <laughs> forcing the crew to improvise. Oh, God. Some say Fulci changed his mind about the end after the shooting was complete, and this was the best they could do. I'm going to go with the coffee one. Because I yeah. want it to be true. That's f- really fucking funny. These three films are the epitome of the phrase, it makes no kind of sense, <laughs> but it sure is entertaining. Well, people think the kid at the end turns out to be a zombie, and it was tacked on at, at the end because of obviously what the whatever the fuck happened with the ending. When, yeah, but the whole idea is that people weren't, like, people weren't being turned into zombies. <laughs> it was about the dead coming back alive. I mean, the kid was never dead. Um, but what actually happens is, None of them do, because <laughs> he's he, he's just running. Just running, looking really happy. Uh, and finally, for Daniela Doria's death scene, in which her character vomits up internal organs, the actress swallowed and regurgitated a plate of tripe. In close-ups, a fake head was used, which contained a pump that spewed the organs out more forcefully. Now, this is the scene I was talking about that actually makes me feel a bit sick. Yeah. This is just... Uh, disgusting and I can't believe I left it out of my uh, choices for scariest moments in October because it is it's not scary it's just disgusting I suppose it depends how you look at it really I mean I think I think all three of these films you know have moments where they're actually quite scary um, like in, in comparison to the American zombie films that are being churned out at this time yeah yeah I think it's the cinematography and 
Yeah, the they're, they're a little more grimy, aren't yeah. they? Um, which is, in a lot of senses, actually helps. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, when I watched them when I was younger, I was just enthralled by how violent they were. Yeah. I mean, I've never really watched films that gruesome. I'd, I'd watched sort of horror films. Of course, I'd watched horror films. And stuff like Hellraiser is, you know, quite violent yeah. um, and gruesome. But I'd never watched, I mean, the first two. Uh, not so much uh, House by the Cemetery. Um, but the gruesomeness of them and mm. um, the, sort of the death scenes, like face melting and throwing up internal organs and, and all that stuff. And, yeah, yeah, it was quite shocking. Yeah, I mean, I'd seen... Uh, I'd watched the opening scene of The House by the Cemetery when I was younger, but I was too scared to watch the rest of it, so I turned it off. Um, and then I watched that in full... Around the same time I watched City of the Living Dead, and I hadn't watched Beyond, and then... When I met you, you said about The Beyond being really great and then I watched it to impress you and it ended up being one of my favourite films. Yeah. That's the Italians, though, isn't it? The, Ita- the Italians, particularly in horror, really pushed boundaries yeah. in that sense. They, they really did. You know, you watch a lot of giallo films as well. They're, you know, c- compared to the slasher films that America churned out afterwards... These yellow films are really nasty. Yeah. A lot of the death scenes are very nasty, um, particularly towards women, which is a subject for another mm. podcast, I feel. Um, but, yeah, really gruesome. A lot of Italian horror, really. I mean, cannibal films all came from Italy. Yeah. yeah. You know, they really push boundaries <laughs> Apart from of that. taste. <laughs> uh, Apart from Devil Hunter. Just came Dev- from Spain. <laughs> oh, yeah, Dev- Oh, my Lord. Very nice to talk about Dev- that. Hunter, thank you. <laughs> so, would you like to tell us what happens in City of the Living Dead? Yes. Um, so, the City of the Living Dead uh, in New York City, which isn't actually the City of the Living Dead. Uh, <laughs> well, some might say. Um, I haven't been. In New York City, during a seance held in the apartment of Medium Teresa, Mary Woodhouse experiences a traumatic vision of a priest, Father Thomas, hanging himself in a cemetery of a village called Dunwich. So that's your H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Not, that's not the source. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft reference. So Dun- obviously the Dunwich Horror was a H.P. Lovecraft novella. Um, so there's your... It, it doesn't... He's not credited, is he, Lovecraft, in the no. film. Um, but he's... IMDb call it influenced by H.P. Yeah. Uh, Lovecraft. How does the uh, seance end? Well, it ends with um, Mary foaming at the mouth <laughs> and collapsing. Whilst making sex noises. Whilst making some <laughs> sexy noises. Very, very sweaty. Poor Catriona McCall. That's her introduction <laughs> to these films. And she she looks terrible, if I'm being... She looks very pale in this film. She's very tired. Um... When the images overwhelm her, Mary breaks the circle and collapses to the floor. The group presume Mary is dead and call the police, who suspect foul play. Teresa warns the police chief of an imminent evil. Journalist Peter Bell begins to investigate Mary's mysterious death and visits her grave as she is about to be buried. Do you not get what the police officer said whilst investigating? No, I didn't. What are you on? Coke? Grass? Where's your stash? Down the toilet? 
Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> no, I just had the dodgy say on That's an alright right impression, actually, Gary. That was, that was quite good. Uh, however, Mary is still alive. And Peter saves her after hearing her cries in what is actually a really good scene. It is. It's very, um, very claustrophobic. Really, really well made. Um, so what you get is, and I'm, I'm surprised Catriona McCall didn't get like something through her eye or something. Um, but he's pickaxing at this casket and it's going really close to her head. And you, you can see uh, in the casket how close this is going to... Uh, Mary's head and then you get it's it's sort of a a crack in there and you see her face and she's screaming really well done really well done was that before or after Bob finds a blow up sex doll um I don't know because that's a very important scene it's not a very important (laughs) scene is it it's a bizarre series of events isn't it he finds a blow up sex doll uh, he throws on the floor and it just inflates itself does it? Yeah. He throws it on the floor and I it inflates. It no. Oh. No. It was, it was deflated and he throws it on the floor and it inflates. And then he finds a dead baby covered in maggots. He does. <laughs> well, I thought it was a dead dog. No, it was a baby. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, but he does, yeah. Yeah, old Bob. But um, the thing is about Bob, and I'm glad they didn't do the hunchback, because it it's... He's, he's very much a stereotype of the weirdo in these yeah. sort of films, isn't he? Yeah, it would have been a bit offensive. He would have been really quite offensive. Um, Peter and Mary visit Teresa, who warns them that according to the ancient book of Enoch, the events Mary witnessed in her visions presaged the eruption of the living dead into our world. The death of Father Thomas has opened the gates of hell, through which the invasion will commence on All Saints' Day. Now... Unfortunately for them, All Saints Day is just a few days away. Um, so they need to hurry to save the world from the uh, gates of hell. <clears throat> In Dunwich, a young vagrant named Bob visits an abandoned house but flees ah, after seeing a rotting carcass. There we go. But This is what happens when you interrupt. Okay, okay. But then also, what about the graveyards? Talking about the uh, graveyards? The uh, graveyard workers talking about... Um, the guy in the porno flick being humped to death. Was that before or after this? Before that this, was before. It? Yeah. 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 It's Yeah. And you also find out that if you're a slut in Dunwich, you're branded a witch. According to who? Um, the therapist's daughter. Oh, okay. Or wife. Whatever the fuck she was. Yeah, well, who was... Th- wife. Wife, I Was think. it his Wife. Wife. Or just girlfriend. I think it was just a girlfriend. You got nothing to say about Sandra. Have I got nothing to say about Sandra? <laughs> yeah, your favourite character. Across Sandra. town, Jerry, a psychiatrist, is in consultation <laughs> with Sandra. You need to shut the fuck up. My off. notes are all over the place. Yeah, your shut notes are fuck? all over the place. You've got a fucking virus on that computer. Apparently. How that... did I end up there? Yeah. Make okay. you interrupt. Yeah, carry on. Excuse me, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Across town, Jerry, a psychiatrist, is in consultation with Sandra, a neurotic patient and big fucking pain in the ass. when Emily Robbins, his 19-year-old girlfriend and personal assistant, ah, arrives. That's why I thought it was his daughter. Thank you very much. Yeah, Sandra is n- neurotic. She's not just neurotic, she's <laughs> fucking stupid as well. Um, she is the Barbara of the 
film, isn't she? Yeah, when she's having a therapy session. <laughs> well, after we get the, the backstory about the Dunwich sluts, um, Jerry goes, Okay, Sandra, where were we? And she says, The same old problem, men. And then I just have noted down, Sandra's pussy goes crazy. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Not a cat. A, yeah, it's not fucking, a fanny. It's a cat. A, a cat just goes mad. Does well, you would, wouldn't you? Having to listen to her fucking <laughs> shit all day. She's chatting shit. <laughs> she tells Jerry that she's been on her way to meet with Bob. This is Emily, not Sandra, whom she has been trying to help. That evening, Emily finds Bob at a derelict garage exhibiting strange behaviour. How does she know he exhibits strange behaviour all the time? <laughs> The supernatural apparition of Father Thomas then appears as Bob runs away. Oh, yeah, he just leaves Emily to it. Yeah. So, Bob, um, so Father Thomas, not Father Bob, Father Thomas <laughs> smothers Emily to death with a maggot-covered hand. Very maggoty, this film. Uh, the next morning, Emily's body is found. Emily's father tells the sheriff and Jerry of his suspicions about Bob due to Bob's previous history of crime. Meanwhile, Peter and Mary leave New York and embark upon their search for the town of Dunwich. Um, so Bob's previous history of crime is little, little Lamb Ross. Yeah, poor little Lamb Ross. Poor little Lamb Ross. We're just here. <laughs> so we I just... can't believe what he did to poor little Lamb Ross. I know, what he did to poor little Lamb <laughs> Ross. Little Lamb Ross. So we're thinking, you know, he's taken a, a young child to the woods and, and been inappropriate. Um, just just remember that for later. <laughs> that evening, Bob returns to the deserted house where he sees a vision of Father Thomas. After Emily's funeral, her younger brother, John John, yeah, that is his name, so good he named, they named him twice, sees a ghostly image of her outside his bedroom window. <laughs> At Sandra's house, the corpse of an elderly woman, Mrs. Holden, appears without explanation on her kitchen floor. Sandra calls Jerry for help, but as soon as Jerry arrives, the body has disappeared. The two search the house, but after dis- uh, but are disturbed by many strange occurrences, such as a window breaking, with the glass then dripping human blood. Meanwhile, Bob has taken refuge in the garage of a local man. Mr. Ross. Ross's teenage daughter, <laughs> Anne, finds him and offers him marijuana. Little Anne Ross is about 30 years old. Little Anne Ross <laughs> looks older than little Bob. Little, little Anne just... Ross is old enough to be walking around with weed in her pocket <laughs> and no bra on a cold day, if you know what I mean. She... I just can't believe all we've heard before this, but poor little Anne Ross. It just shows up like, hey, you want a joint? Yeah. <laughs> poor little Anne Ross. Poor little Anne Ross gets Bob murdered. She, yeah. <laughs> but she's, she looks older than Bob. It's so weird. Like, <laughs> um, like, Age isn't a real thing in Italian horror films, is no, it? No. Could, could you not find a child actor <laughs> to be in the film? Um... Yeah, so she offers him some marijuana, but Ross bursts in and attacks Bob, fearful he's trying to seduce his daughter. Ross then kills Bob by impaling his head through a drilling lathe. A great special effects this one is. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it, uh, but essentially it's, it's a 
drill on a machine, like a long drill. Um, I, yeah. I don't know how the to describe weird, The really it. weird thing about this kill is the fact that you still see his face moving when it's going through exactly. him. Exactly. I like, thought really you may good. have actually killed a man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but this huge drill goes through one side of his head and out the other. But the actor's like face is still moving. It doesn't look shit. It actually looks really good. This is this is the kill that I remember uh, from when, my first time watching it. This is the one that stuck with me. Um, because the guy's fucking face is moving. He's got a drill going through it. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. Like, really well done. The following morning... <laughs> yeah, you've got Bob, Bob's the only one in the film not to be killed by uh, <laughs> a supernatural. <laughs> like, like, Little Ann Ross's dad just gets away with it like that's the last we see of him isn't it yeah yeah that's it you know so no one fucking hates him so they'll probably congratulate him little, yeah little mr ross little mr ross <laughs> the following morning peter and mary arrive at the graveyard that mary saw in her vision they begin searching for father thomas's tomb and meet jerry and sandra they go back to jerry's office to discuss father thomas's death when suddenly the four are showered with maggots in an apparent supernatural attack. Jerry then receives a distressing phone call from jo- John John Robbins. <laughs> John John Robbins. John John. <laughs> Who's stupid fucking than John John? Um, well, at least he's uh, a little less strange than Bob. But is this, is this what Italians thought Americans were called? John John. Um... John John Robbins explaining his dead sister has returned during the night and killed his parents. It, his parents, so little John John Robbins must be, what, like 9, 10, 11 yeah. maximum. And his parents are like 70. <laughs> really old. Like age means nothing in these films. <laughs> they rush over to the Robbins house and try to find the sheriff. While trying to get John John to safety, Sandra is thankfully killed by Emily, who <laughs> rips Sandra's scalp off. <laughs> John John runs through the streets of the town and is saved by Jerry, who hands the boy over to the police. Mr. R- oh, no, we do see Mr. Ross again. Mr. <laughs> Ross is drinking at a bar when it is suddenly attacked by the reanimated dead people of the town, led by Bob. How did we miss <laughs> this? I'm, I'm telling you now, I, I don't know where our notes are separating, but you've even missed out the intestines vomiting scene. I have, haven't I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, when did that happen? That happened um, before we find out that Bob did something to Little Ambrosa quite a while back. Oh. It also happens after the graveyard workers leave the coffin uncovered because of the union hours, and that's when Katrina McCall's recovered. So it's either my notes are all over the place or your notes are all over the place. But either way, everything we're saying happens in the film. Yeah. More of a reason to go and watch it. The thing <laughs> is, this is, this is, uh, it's hard to keep up because none of it makes any fucking sense. Um, it's one of those films you feel rather than understand. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, so what, what, the intestines being thrown up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. That's a lot earlier on. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, we can still discuss it. This is our podcast. <laughs> Do it in any order we want. Would you like to say something about that? Uh, yeah, it is genuinely the most disgusting scene in cinematic history. What makes it so disgusting? Because it fucking sounds like someone throwing up. And I can't take the sound of someone throwing up in real life, let alone in the film. Um, 
and it makes me feel sick. So that happens, and then you're also presented with this disgusting fucking imagery of all these random whatever the fuck he was pumping out of her mouth. It just looks revolting. It is. It's always and intestine. Obviously, she's, she's bleeding from her eyes as well. Like the whole that scene is just ridiculous. It, it's extreme in horror cinema. It is. It is, and it, it is just. It's a couple. Um, in a car, aren't they? Yeah. And, and then Father, uh, whatever his name, Robert. Is it Father Robert? Father Bob. No, not Father Bob. Father no, Thomas. Father Thomas, that's the one. Uh, Father Thomas um, just comes out of nowhere and yeah. just makes her start vomiting. And the thing is, it's not even one of those scenes that's there um, purely just for shock value because it's not even a main focus on just the, the gross-out effects. The scene as a whole, the cinematography, the soundtrack in that scene, everything is just so well executed, and it doesn't feel like it's just another throwaway death scene. Yeah, yeah. And that goes for every scene in this film. It is so well shot. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and the soundtrack is great, actually. Yeah. Very reminiscent of Dawn of the Dead, Yeah, I found. Uh, but it works. Works really well. So Mr. Ross is drinking at a bar when it is suddenly attacked by the reanimated dead people of the town, led by Bob. Ross and two other men are killed as a state of emergency is declared over the radio. Mary, Peter and Jerry arrive back at the graveyard as the clock strikes midnight and All Saints Day begins. <gasps> they descend into Father Thomas's family tomb, discovering an underground cave of skeletal remains and cobwebbed... ...pudrescences. <laughs> you tell us not my word. Putrescences. <laughs> Sandra suddenly appears as a zombie and kills Peter before she is killed by Jerry, who impales her with a wooden spike. Get to see her die twice. Yes, thank God. <laughs> Mary and Jerry continue on until they face Father Thomas, who is commanding an army of the undead. Before he can kill Mary, Ga Jerry grabs a wooden... Gary? Gary. No, I didn't. Gary. <laughs> Jerry. Jerry. Grabs a wooden cross and disembowels Father Thomas. The priest and the other revived corpses burst into flames and disappear. Mary and Jerry exit from Father Thomas's tomb into the graveyard at morning to see John John and the police. Mary is relieved to see John John survive the ordeal, but becomes frightened as screams as everything fades to black. <laughs> it doesn't actually fade to black. So what actually happens is John John starts running towards them. And then we get, like, that crack thing on, on the um, film, don't we? Crack transition. Crack transition. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and um, she screams off camera, and then that's it. Fades to black. Yeah. I'd just like to uh, read out a dialogue exchange that you missed out. I didn't miss out. I haven't got dialogue written down. I'm sorry. So, in the graveyard before... You're telling me I miss shit out, okay? <laughs> in, in the graveyard before um, Catriona McCall's is brought back to life um, out of a coffin, two men, one with a blonde moustache, um, very on brand for us, uh, and another one who just... He's uh, a very boring-looking guy. No characteristics about him. Um, they're having a chat whilst he's looking for a dirty mag, and one of them says, you're going to end up being a dirty old man, a pervert, a peeping Tom. <laughs> the blonde moustache guy says, talk about a lunchbox. <laughs> and then 
The other guy says, I saw a porno flick once. A man got so horny he humped himself to death. The other guy says, too much of a good thing. The other guy says, yeah, what a way to go. That's the kind of dialogue <laughs> you get in these sort of films. It's throwaway dialogue between characters. Yeah, 10 out of 10 practical effects, cinematography, soundtrack, 5 out of 10 dialogue. <laughs> yeah, and that ending. I mean, what came before it made no fucking sense. Well, that absolutely made no sense. No idea how that film ended. Yeah. It's, and, and I mean, I've, I've obviously just read out the um, plot, um, missing a few important bits, according to Gary. Um, but I'm still none the wiser what really that film was about. Yeah, it doesn't matter what order you read it. it doesn't, the film <laughs> makes no sense anyway. It makes no sense. But again, it's, it's, it's a film you feel, it's a film you put on with some popcorn on a Saturday night and watch a gory, you know, horror film. Not too much popcorn. You don't want to fill your stomach up for that intestine scene. No. No, it's true. But it's a great film. I, I love it. I think it's... Uh, it, it's it's one of those... With Italian horror, you've either got... You know, you've either got your terrible, really slow and boring films, uh, like Absurd, um, The Bloodstained... Shadow, was it? No, or... Spasmo was the one that we struggled yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. But there was another one, Bloodstained something, that was really shit. Um, and, you know, there's films like that, and obviously Zombie Flesh Eats 4, um, that are just boring, like nothing happens. Then you've got your middle ground, you've got your films that are so bad they're good. Um, House by the Cemetery is very close to that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then you get films like this where, you know, you can see that these directors, these Italian directors are pioneers of the genre. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. You know, you see, their love for horror is there. And yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're obviously riding high of what was popular in America at the time, but they do it to an extreme, but they do it whilst making a film look beautiful as well, so. And and how the fuck someone can make a film where a guy gets a drill through his head and a woman vomits up intestines look beautiful, I, you know, my hat goes off to fortune for that. Yeah, it it's, it's the weird kind of... You know, obviously the film is absurd and the plot is absurd and the, you know, over-the-top grotesqueness is yeah. absurd. But it's created with such... like a, It's it's a lot very genuine. Like, Lucio Fulci, it, it's as if he knows what he's doing is crazy... But he's going to do it properly and he's going to take it very serious, um, which works. It doesn't always work, but it works particularly for this trilogy and really works for The Beyond. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which, The Beyond was released in 1981, the second part in the trilogy, at a budget of $400,000 and it made just under $124,000. So it was a bit of a flop. Um, Is that... Internationally, yeah. or is that just in America? It's worldwide. Worldwide, yeah. really. Uh huh. Yeah, which is a shame. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's got all three of these films have got a massive cult following now, uh, which always seems to be the way with these type of films. Uh, Bob Murawski and uh, Bob Murawski of Grindhouse Releasing, who restored the film in nineteen ninety eight, is a film editor and used the shot from the film in the Spider Bite dream sequence in Spider Man. Now we watched Spider Man the weekend. Spider Man, Spider Man at the weekend before 
watching this. Yeah. Uh, before I knew that fact. Um, and I, I don't remember it. Can, no. Do you know? No. I can't. I mean, it, it's plausible. I mean, there is uh, a spider scene in this film with various close-up spiders. So, yeah. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is, but... <laughs> Oh, do you mean like the real spiders yeah. in the scene? Not the... Uh... <laughs> the real ones. <laughs> no, not the fake ones. A Swedish rock band, Europe, based the song Seven Doors Hotel from their first album on this film. Uh, just to confirm, I mean, the, the Swedish band called Europe. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know what their famous song is, don't you? Yeah, I do. Final Countdown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the lyrics are a basic retelling of the plot of the film. The song became a big hit in Japan and is still a popular track at their live shows. Oh, okay. Uh, the book of... <laughs> How the fuck can a song be the basic plot of the film <laughs> and the plot is certainly not basic? <laughs> oh, we don't know what happens next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is this about? <laughs> The Book of Ebon, uh, featured pro- pro- bleh, 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 prominently throughout this film, is the creation of American pulp fiction author, poet, and fine artist Clark Ashton Smith, and is a recurring text associated with the Cthulhu Mythos mm-hmm. uh, cycle of literature initiated by the works of, again, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, the book, which deals with various arcane subjects, including the resurrection of the dead, demonic magic, parallel dimensions, and other black magic subjects, is alleged to have been imparted to the infamous necromancer Abon uh, by the ancient devil god Savogua. Savogua. I have no other way of saying that. In a remote prehistoric epoch. The book was introduced in Smith's 1933 short story, Uber Safla. Yeah? Yeah. But I think we all knew that. Wow, all right. I'm just going <laughs> to fuck myself. It took a lot to read all that out, but it was hard words. That's the joke. That's the, film, the joke. The film was never seen in America in its uncut form until 1998, when Grindhouse released and tracked down the original master and restored the film, playing it at midnight shows in selected cities. Quentin Tarantino's Rolling Thunder Pictures released the restored DVD uh, as it was his favourite horror film when it was initially released in 1983. Oh. In America, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course it's Tarantino's favourite film. Every film's Quentin Tarantino's favourite film. Every film is Quentin Tarantino's favourite film. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, if, if this is his, if this is genuine one of his favourite horror films, and this is exactly why he needs to make a proper horror film. Yeah. Yeah. I know like, he did Death uh, yeah. but he needs to make a proper proper horror film. Oh, you mean a, a better one? Yeah, a better one. Yeah, better than Death Proof. Yeah. Uh, director Lucio Fulci had his zombie fleshy as star Tisa Faro in mind for the lead in this film, but Faro had left the acting profession by this point. Oh, okay. That's quite quick. I mean, it wasn't that long since zombie fleshy is. No. But, um, yeah, well, he just worked with Catriona McCall, though, yeah. hadn't he? Oh, I'm surprised that she wasn't the first choice after just working with him. Uh, his cameo in this film is the librarian who goes out to lunch right before the architect is attacked by the spiders. Yes. <laughs> yeah. During the final scene in the Beyond's Abyss, the sand-covered bodies lying on the ground actually start naked street derelicts who were paid in alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny to think of. 
<laughs> Fauci decided to no longer work for the Italian distributors who produced this film, Zombie Flesh Eaters, due to their title fiasco trying to cash in on the success of Dawn of the Dead. Did not do him a favour, though, let's face it. He approached Medusa Distribuzone, uh, technically making this a German production, where he intended the film to be purely a metaphysical horror film with only the villain, uh, Shriek, being a zombie. However, the executives insisted on a zombie rampage somewhere in the film's climax due to zombie being a massive hit worldwide, uh, including in Germany. Fauci was hesitant at first, but agreed after being promised creative control over anything else in the film, which definitely shows. Very much like Zombie, the film was renamed in both Germany and United States. Unlike Zombie, the titles were original and not intended to cash in on other films. In Germany, it's called The Ghost Town of Zombies. In America, it was briefly called Seven Doors of Death. And was given a whole new score by Mitch and Ira Yusbeth. Why? This got a fantastic I score. I know, but what do you, what do you think of Ghost Town of Zombies? Shit. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Should have called, called Howgate that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's not Ghost Town, it's New Orleans. <laughs> Many people have assumed Emily's brutal death from her seeing eye dog bit. Uh, biting her throat and ear off as gratuitous violence, which is a staple in most of Fortune's films. However, this was intended to be a visual, albeit gory interpretation of the phrase see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Uh-huh. She was blinded from the view of how, and was killed in such a brutal manner due to her warnings to Lisa, and ended it genuinely as see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. She has a throat ripped out, uh, her ears, and uh, she's blind. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So getting into the film, at Louisiana's Seven Doors Hotel in 1927, a lynch mob murders an artist named Shriek. Yeah, Shriek. what a really weird name. Shriek. 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 Okay, we're going to call him Shriek. Um, it sounds whom, different every time someone <laughs> says it in the film. Whom they believe to be a warlock. Shriek was in the middle of finishing a grotesque painting, which is seen as part of a seance and evidence of the mob's belief. Since, okay, I'm calling him the warlock. Since the warlock was killed while the painting was being completed, this counts as a human sacrifice and one of the seven doors of death opens, allowing the dead to cross into the world of the living. And that entire opening sequence is just horror perfection. It is. It, it really is. It's filmed in, uh, like, a sepia tone. Well, that's the thing. It, it wasn't... I don't think it was originally. There's oh. the, the Shameless release has got, like, five different versions of that opening sequence in different colours and, and such. Yeah. Well, it works in sepia In sepia, tone. it looks really great. Um, and the special effects are great. Yeah. He gets uh, pinned to the wall and acid thrown on him. And his, his like, face is just... Bobbling and melting away, uh, but the way they do it, and I know this is gonna sound stupid, but it's like a bath bomb, but like a bath bomb where the middle is a different color, like red. So his face is melting, but then all this like blood comes out of it as well, which I'm assuming is red in the color version. Um, but yeah, it looks like a bath bomb. <laughs> if any but in filmmakers are looking to recreate the scene, use a bath bomb. In 1981, Liza Marill, played by Katrina McColl, a young woman from New York City, inherits the hotel and plans to reopen it. Her renovation work activates the Howl portal and she contends with increasingly strange incidents. Larry, a painter, 
Falls off his rig after seeing a white-eyed woman and is badly injured, coughing up blood and babbling out of batter eyes. Yeah. <laughs> this guy has such, <laughs> such a stereotypical, like, Louisiana accent, doesn't he? Yeah. He's like a proper stereotype. The dubbing for him is a proper stereotype. <laughs> Dr. John McCabe arrives to take the injured man to the hospital and offers Liza some sympathy. A plumber named Joe investigates the flooding in the basement. No, no one to say. Is there something funny about a basement being flooded? No, nothing at all. No. And a demonic hand gouges out his eye. His body and another are later discovered by hotel maid Martha. Liza encounters... <laughs> the thing is with Martha is that she doesn't actually really react. <laughs> no. She, she she finds Joe's body in the uh, flooded basement and she just sort of like... Huh? <laughs> she just stares at it. Whereas in... Like, the guy's just been murdered um, in the basement and you're just... You just make some sort of like weird... Oh, oh. It's got a dark history. She's probably seen it all before. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Well, no, because she ends up getting killed as well. Yeah. So really, there's no reason for her to not react to the dead body in front of her. <laughs> so Eliza encounters a blind woman named Emily and her dog Dickie, who uh, warns her that reopening the hotel so would be a mistake. something funny about a dog called Dickie. <laughs> these are your these are your jokes. You should have read this one. Oh, my jokes. My <laughs> jokes. <laughs> Joe's wife, Mary Ann, and their daughter, Jill. Jill's a strange-looking character, isn't she? She looks like she's a Victorian ghost. She does look like a Victorian ghost. Um, she's got red hair and, and pigtails. Oh, she's, she's very pale, uh, but she does look like a Victorian ghost. She, yeah, she's always dressed in, like, a school uniform. She well. never looks happy to be there. No, no. The actress is about 60 years old, playing a school kid. A little bit. It As does, of all these films. It does, yeah, yeah. It does feel like the child actors look a lot older. Than, but, like, they're obviously small in stature, but they their faces and such look much older. Well, she gets the best death of the film later on, so... She does. Can't complain too much. They arrive at the mug to claim Joe's corpse. After tending to her late husband's corpse, Mary Ann screams in terror, which causes her to fall to the floor. <laughs> yeah, there's a real. <laughs> it's funny, but it's really convoluted. Is that this this corpse that's been dead for God knows how long, is there not Joe's the other corpse? And uh, one of the doctors is like, "Oh, can I put my brain scanner on it?" <laughs> like, Why would you do that? It's been dead for like a hundred years. It's like, oh, I just want to try it out. <laughs> so convoluted. And um, so he's like, oh, well, go on then. But when, when, once I get back, he's, I'm doing the autopsy. He's like, ah, oh, great. So he puts the brain scanner on it and then leaves. Obviously, there's no brain scan. The guy's been dead for 100 years or, or whatnot. Um, and then it starts like, beep, beep, beep. I'm like, <laughs> really? I mean, I mean, it ends up being, you know, it's a cool image and that. But the way they get to it is so... <laughs> So ridiculous. Like, no one would do that. Jill finds her mother lying on the floor unconscious, her face burned by acid, and toppled over from the impact. As she tries yeah, to flee... Yeah, no, no, that's not... <laughs> so, this is another bath bomb situation. <laughs> um, so, the mum knocks this bottle over. And it's not the biggest bottle in the world, 
But it keeps going for ages, doesn't it? It's <laughs> pouring out loads. <laughs> and it's just, obviously, again, looks like a bath bomb, her face. I'm, I'm honestly surprised she had any sort of skin left on her face. Yeah. After, or any face at all after that. Um, but as, uh, as she tries to flee after seeing this, Jill encounters a corpse coming back to life. Meanwhile, Liza bores Dr. McCabe with her life story over dinner. And she <laughs> she admits her multiple failed careers and how reopening a hotel will fulfil her hopes for success. <laughs> She's having a milkshake, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> and then Dr. McCabe's like, okay, you've bored me for fucking ages now. Here's my life story. Are we meant to believe that that's some sort of like first date or something? <laughs> because in the first film... You know, you you end you end up with your man and woman at the end, and you know there's not really a romantic thing no. between them. In this one, I thought we were gonna get a little bit of romance, but it never really turns out that way. No, you know, it, I mean they're together sort of till the end of the film, um, but you don't really get any flirtation or even a cheeky kiss at any point, which I I thought was maybe a little disappointing. Yeah. Not, not important. No. I like a bit of romance <laughs> in my seedy horror films. <laughs> so Dr. McCabe starts boring Liza and talks about his experience as a doctor, giving him a better grasp of reality and led to atheism. He then receives a phone call informing him of Marianne's death. Later, Liza encounters Emily at the hotel. Emily tells Liza the story of Shriek, or the warlock. The warlock, sorry, I forgot for a second. And warns her not to enter room 36. How come you said his name so naturally then? Have you got it spelt differently? No. No? no. Um, she warns her to never enter room 36 and the bell rings for room 36. <gasps> Liza notes how terrified Emily becomes afterwards. When Emily examines the warlock's painting, um, she begins to bleed and flees the hotel. This is one of the scenes that I do. It's a bit weird. <laughs> like, we get um the shot of her running um quite camply out of the hotel, like, three times in a row for some reason. <laughs> Liza attempts to go after Emily, but notices that, her own, that uh, her own footsteps are audible, whilst Emily and Dickie did not have footsteps. Oh. Liza ignores... Did she it. notice that? Because I didn't. <laughs> yeah, we get a flashback to them running and no noise. Oh, that's why they showed it so many yeah. times. Oh, I thought they were just doing like a no. total eclipse of the heart no. style thing. She realised she, she makes no noise when she walks. Oh. Liza ignores Emily's advice and investigates... Is that why she runs so camp? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't make a noise. She investigates room 36 and discovers an ancient book titled Abon and sees the warlock's corpse nailed to the bathroom wall. She flees the room in terror but is stopped by John. She takes him back to uh, room 36 but the corpse wanted to make it look like a bit of a twat and disappeared. <laughs> Liza describes her fearful encounter with, <laughs> with Emily. I hate being pranked by corpses. <laughs> John insists that Emily is not real. Whilst in town, Liza spots a copy of Avon in the window of a bookstore. Did but... <laughs> she say Avon? The Avon yeah, book. the Avon catalogue. The Avon catalogue. Uh, <laughs> when she rushes in to grab it, a different book is in its place. 
the, the shop owner everyone's making it look like a twine they it's all it's just people playing pranks on Katrina McCall. yeah the shop owner says the book has been there for years prompting Lisa to remark to John that perhaps it's all in her head the shop owner laughs a lot throughout the entire the scene and it's uh, yeah, fucking annoying thinks that she should buy the other book because it's very nice very interesting yeah. <laughs> at the hotel a worker named Arthur attempts to repair the same leak as Joe but is killed off screen by ghouls just don't fix the leak just leave it, it yeah it. Arthur's giving Bob vibes <laughs> he is um, if a little more docile than Bob <laughs> uh, but yeah do not fix that leak in that flooded basement Liza's leave friend... the flooded basement alone <laughs> Liza's friend Martin visits the public library to find the hotel's blueprints, which reveal a large unknown space in the centre. He becomes curious, but is struck by a sudden force and falls from a ladder, resulting in paralysis. Spiders appear out of nowhere and swarm over his body, ravaging his face and killing him in a disgusting scene. It, it is. It is Some actually... of them are clearly fake, but it's like the, the ones that look real that are going up by his tongue and everything looks really gross. Yeah, so it's really close up, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And these, some of these spiders are going into his mouth and biting his tongue. Um, they're biting chunks of his face off. Um, so it cuts between real tarantulas and, let's be honest, extremely fake-looking yeah. ones. Um, there are moments where it looks like someone's just prodding him with this fake spider um so it's the only time in the trilogy where the effects aren't good yeah um but i can forgive it it's been what 40 years i'll let them off yeah and the more realistic ones are a bit more distracting anyway so well they're real spiders yeah i know but i mean they're more distracting from the fake yes of course yeah yeah it's still (laughs) a horrible scene especially if you've got an arachnophobia you've got a while Got an arachnophobia. I thought you said you've got an erection. <laughs> it would be scary. <laughs> it would be scary anyone who got one whilst watching that scene. What creeps on Back at the hotel, Martha is cleaning the bathroom in room 36 when Joe's animated corpse emerges from the bathtub. Joe pushes her head into one of the exposed nails where the warlock's corpse was earlier, killing her and gouging one of her eyes. Yeah, it's another... Oh, um... Lucio, l- Lucio, yeah, my mate Lucio. Lucio Fulci loves a uh, attack on the eyes, doesn't he? Does. Uh, this one's a really good one. So yeah. it goes through the back of her head, and then pushes the eye out the front. Uh, very, very reminiscent of uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Three. Yeah. <laughs> but this is deliberately on the end of a nail, <laughs> and uh, blood starts pouring out, and she's a lot more animated this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is weird, considering this is the second time she's discovered Joe's corpse. Later, the walking corpses of the warlock, Joe, Marianne, Martin and Arthur, invade Emily's house due to her warning Liza about the impending doom. She orders them to leave her alone and insists that she will not return with the warlock. She commands Dickie to attack by shouting, Attack, Dickie! She did say attack, Dickie. It's going to be all those gays when, all the single gays when uh, the clubs reopen. <laughs> no? I don't, I don't 
<laughs> Maybe. Attack. I wouldn't attack one. Well, not the chairs. Oh, it's meant to be funny. Fuck it. The corpses, uh, and then they are scared away by the command of attack, Dickie. Um, Dickie turns on Emily after this, um, and there's not a single bad effect found in this scene where he tears out her throat and rips off her ear. Yeah, blood pouring everywhere. It's it? very much taken from Suspiria, let's face it. But it works. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It, it stands on its own. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that was the scene in Suspiria. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it works. At the hotel, spirits terrorise Liza um, while John breaks into Emily's house, which appears to have been abandoned for years and finds Ebon. Liza suffers a mental breakdown when Arthur's corpse tries to kill her and the bell rings when she tries to escape. John returns to the hotel and patronises Liza, <laughs> accusing her of placing the book in the house and making everything up just to get him there. Well, don't flat yourself, John. I know, yeah. His final decision to disregard her fears is when he spitefully reads the book and learns the hotel is a gateway to hell. Yeah, well done, John. Thanks a lot. <laughs> a sudden force roars and bleeds all over them, making them flee. The warlock's painting bleeds and an unseen force says, and you will face the sea of darkness and all therein that may be explored. The blood-soaked pair retreat to the hospital, which is empty. John tries to think of some logical answer for the events, but the hospital is suddenly overrun by ghouls. Liza is attacked by Larry's corpse, but John gets a gun out of his desk and they escape, only to become separated. It's not as flashy as the gun that we get to see in the next film. No, it's not, actually. Only Dr. Harris and Jill are still found still, are found still alive, uh, but Harris is killed by flying shards of glass. Liza, John and Jill try to flee, but are confronted by the warlock's corpse. No matter how many times he is shot by John, he continues his pursuit. Jill attacks Liza and gets a massive headshot by John. This is a great special effect. Yeah. This like, is seriously, it's like an exploding head. So if you head over to our YouTube channel, um, the Horror Culture Show on YouTube, um, the the compilation I did for the ten best zombie films. This is the clip I used for the Beyond. Uh, if anyone wanted to watch the scene, but it is insane. Yeah. Yes, yeah, such a good shot. The whole of that scene is just fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and then this is where it goes into proper zombie film territory, trying to get out of a zombie-infested hospital, uh, which isn't exactly in keeping with the rest of the film, uh, but it's really, really enjoyable. Yeah, this is when it becomes one big bizarre series of events, because escaping the ghouls... Uh, John and Liza rush down the set of stairs, but find themselves back in the basement of the hotel. Uh, John notes how impossible the entire ordeal is, as do we, the audience. But there's no choice but to accept it to be real. They move forward through the flooded labyrinth and stumble into a supernatural wasteland. The same landscape in the Warlock's painting, which turns out to be Hal itself. No matter which direction they travel, they find themselves back at their starting point and they're ultimately blinded just like Emily, succumb to the darkness and disappear. And that's the beyond. And that is. So it's that final scene where we have the um was it the the homeless men? The, the Yeah, yeah, the, the naked the, the naked homeless men at the end lying around hell. Um The Beyond just a real batshit crazy over-the-top, ridiculous masterpiece. Yeah. It really is just a fantastic film. 
It's one of those films that doesn't need to make sense because of everything going on within the film, it's just... There's, there's so much to love. There's, there's absolutely... I, I can't give anything to fault with it at all. Yeah, you, you've got... So, so City of the Living Dead um, is essentially similar in a way... Um, but but more so than the, the beyond, um, a series of set pieces put pulled together with a very mild plot. Yeah. Whereas the beyond is maybe a little more engrossing between the set pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the kind of films that you watch for the death scenes. Yeah. You know, um, and it delivers on that but also manages to deliver um, a little more characterization for Liza. Yeah. Um, a little more engrossing of a, a sort of plot line. Um, yeah, it's just great. It's just a great film. Yeah. Really, yeah. really good. Uh, and that, that was my introduction to Lucio Fulci, and I would say it's his best film. Yeah, I'd say it's on par with Zombie Flesh Eaters. Yeah, on par with Zombie Flesh Eaters. Yeah, no. Really good film. And that brings us to The House by the Cemetery, the concluding chapter in the Gates of Hell trilogy, released in 1981. Again, no budget or gross for this one, um, but I, I knew of this film's existence. Like I said, I watched the, the introduction to the film when I was younger um, and was terrified of it and off. But this is the one I knew about. I didn't know it was part of a trilogy. I knew it existed. Well, I've got from Wikipedia budget of six hundred thousand. Oh, have you? Oh, okay. And a box office of one point four million. Oh wow, that's um, that's probably why I knew of it. But it did quite well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to tell with these films, with them making money because, in the UK, they were just banned. <laughs> Yeah. Like, they never saw the cinema, really, did they? Uh, no, no. Um, so, you're saying that Beyond came out in the cinema in America mm. in 1983. So, sometimes it takes a while for it to reach outside of Italy. Yeah. So, I don't think these figures are always going to be 100% accurate in terms of gross. Yeah, in fact, I think I may have known this one because it was a video nasty and... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Zombie Flesh Eaters was my first, and Evil Dead were the first two things I knew about Video Nasties. They're my first introductions to it. Uh, but this is definitely around that time, so that would make sense. Um, we watched documentaries before this on the on Video Nasties, didn't we? Did you want to say, say a bit about it? Let, but let's not say too much, because I would like to do full episode. We would like to do a full episode. Uh, now, for, I'm not sure, you know, people in the UK... Um, might be more aware of what the video nasties yeah. were. Uh, but during the 80s, after the VHS uh, was released, uh, there were no actual restrictions or limits on VHSs in terms of age. So now, we, you know, in the cinemas, there was restricted. Yeah. You would have to be over 18, over a certain age. That the wasn't X back then. X, yeah, X, X-rated. Um, so, which now just means porn. Yeah. <laughs> but back then it didn't necessarily mean pornography. Um, but there were no restrictions on VHSs. 
No. So people were getting hold of very gory, uh, very explicit films on VHS uh, with no restrictions. Mm-hmm. So the government got involved because we had a lovely conservative government during the whole of the 80s. They decided to get involved and decided that numerous films were not allowed to be released on VHS. Yeah. Films that they watched... Well, no. Or films that at first they watch. didn't watch before saying this. But then, as, you know, Tory governments go, became massive hypocrites by watching a showreel of the most shocking parts of these films and then telling the public they can't watch it. So they're, they're, they're saying they're okay to watch it. They could sit there and watch these films to say they're not okay. But everyone underneath them that's not, you know... Not on their level, um, isn't fit to watch it because it'll make them go out and kill someone. Apparently, it's not fit for dogs either. No, the whole no, thing is it is. bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. Essentially, what it came down to was seventy-two films were prosecuted by the UK government under um, the Video Something Act. What was it called? Oh, well, there was, there was an act in place yeah. and they were, um, es- essentially video stores were told that they are not allowed to have these films in stock for facing a prison fine, a, a fine or going to prison. Uh, and some people did go to prison for selling these films. So it was a list of 72. There was a long list of films, but the ones prosecuted was 72. Yeah. Um, they were called the Video Nasties. And a big propaganda machine, including the newspapers, that essentially said, these films are so disgusting that anyone watching them will be influenced <laughs> to go out and kill. And dogs, don't forget dogs. And dogs, and dogs. Um, <laughs> and it was a big, big thing uh, during the 80s, and it, it sort of carried on for a very long time as well. A lot of these films weren't released until 20, almost 30 years after they were initially made. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes some horror classics, Yeah, you know? The Evil Dead, I mean, look at what The Evil Dead is nowadays, it's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean... Video games, TV show, comic books. Ash is an icon within horror. Um, you know, it is a massive deal. And that all spawned from a video nasty. Yeah. You know, I Spit on Your Grave, Last House on the Left, Zombie Flesh Eaters, and of course, as we're discussing today, The Beyond and now The House by the Cemetery. Um, do you think The Beyond and House by the Cemetery warranted... I mean, to be honest, nothing deserved to be on that list because the whole, the whole procedure is bullshit. But if we're going by shocking, do you think this was shocking enough to be considered for that list? No. The I, Beyond, I do. The Beyond, I do. Yeah. But The Beyond is a supernatural film. Yeah. The House by the Cemetery is less supernatural. Yeah. But also less uh, grotesque. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Oh, oh shit. Uh, these are not sound effects to discuss <laughs> yeah, um, the video nasties. You haven't been selling video nasties. <laughs> um, what? The whole video nasty thing boiled down to the fact that middle class, um, old white people decided that 
working class people weren't allowed to watch these films because they were scared they would watch these films and be influenced to go out and rape and kill and, you know, cause trouble. The guy in charge, James Furman, even said at one point, he his biggest worry was the common man watching these films. He didn't, you know... So you, you get a lot of films that are just as, you know, violent or sexual that are allowed to be seen and watched because they're seen considered more highbrow. These video nasties were considered to be lowbrow films and therefore not, with no artistic merit, therefore they should be banned. Um, so that's really what it all boiled down to. But I don't, I don't understand how anyone could watch The Beyond and be influenced to go out no. and copy no. The Beyond. Because The Beyond is a fucking supernatural film. It's a, you know, it's a zombie film. Like, what are they going to do? No. What it's, are they gonna it's ridiculous. Grab a load of tarantulas and throw them at someone. It's ridiculous. Yeah, some of the films that are on the list are just uh, uh, insane. I mean... Absurd. Who the fuck's going to watch Absurd? And what, what the fuck are you going to do? Just sit around and talk about the... Be influenced to talk about the Super, Super Bowl? Bowl. The f- uh, nothing happens. Isn't it? And what you get... And I think we're going into... <laughs> going a little in-depth. Because we want to do a separate podcast episode. But what you get is a lot of films that um, became notorious. And we've watched a fair few. And we want to make our way through all of them. But we watched a fair few. They're actually really shit. Yeah. And really boring. And we probably would never have watched unless they were on the video nasties list. So some of them have benefited from being on that list yeah. in the long run. Um, but then there there are some absolute classics on there too. Yeah. Uh, this this falls just uh, it's a it's a classic. What am I talking about? Of course, it's a are classic. You saying, uh, I disagree. It's it's a classic, maybe not for the right reasons. We're yeah. talking about House by the Cemetery, a video nasty from nineteen eighty one, uh, which was filmed on the Ellis Estate in Skituate, MA. I think I pronounced that right. Where another Italian horror film, Ghost House, was also filmed. Okay. Ghost House, I believe, was a cash in on Evil Dead. Was it Ghost House? Yeah, it's part of that. I think it's part of a collection. That's not the Linda Blair film, is no, it? No, but I think it's a sequel to that. Ah. I think it's it's a never loose trilogy, um, films. That, yeah, I think it's it's part of which that. Ghost House. Nineteen eighty eight. Nineteen eighty eight. Oh yeah, La Casa Three. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. So it comes, before La Casa Four, which is witchcraft. Starring David Hasselhoff and Linda Blair. Can you look at alternative titles? I swear it's like Evil Dead something. Uh, alternative titles. Uh, Evil Dead 3. There we go. Evil Dead 3. <laughs> yes. One of the early VHS issues of uh, House by the Cemetery in America had several of the film's reels out of order, further confusing the already erratic story. <laughs> Although most of the dialogue was done in English, uh, the movie was nonetheless dubbed in post-production. The only two, um, the, the main Italian actors in this film are the, the kids, and we'll get to that shortly. Um, 
Giovanni Frezza, speaking of which, was only eight years old when he was cast as Bob in this film, and that is insane. It is, because it, it's not the kind of Danny Torrance-style um, not knowing that he was in a horror film. Um, this, this kid is, like, really right in the middle of the horror. We, we need a whole segment dedicated to him, so we'll get to him shortly. He, um, he is actually the horror of the film. Catriona McCall overcame her fear, her uh, aversion to bats as a direct result of acting in this film. I mean, they're not real, but... It wasn't even a real bat. I know. She did, she did make a big deal of it on the interview as well. And that we watched her in it. Um, it wasn't even a real bath. No. There's no real bath in this film, is there? No. No. So the music uh, is from the Spaghetti Western Django's Cut Prize Corpses. Wow, now that's a title. Cut Prize Corpses. Fulci's cameo in this one is Professor Muller, who talks with Norman Boyle on the New York City street. Oh, yeah. This one's probably the most obvious. One. Yeah. This is the one I actually noticed. I didn't notice the other ones. The estate agent's death was originally longer and nastier and included eye gouging, because, uh, you know, Fulci. Yes. This was cut because Fulci didn't think the effects were realistic enough. Um, it's pretty nasty in yeah. any way, Yeah, actually. it really is. Yeah. Uh, the scene where Paolo Malco stabs Dr. Fruitstein in the stomach with a steak knife was done in a single take. Oh, with all the shit yeah, coming out of yeah. it. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Yeah, so, I mean, before we get into this film, on the Arrow Blu-ray, um, it features an introduction from Giovanni Frezza, um, who plays Bob, uh, apologising for his voice. Now, this is this is the, the Bob section. Um, this is <laughs> this is part Bob of uh, this podcast episode. Can you explain why we need a whole section dedicated to this fucking weirdo? Because, <laughs> as Gary explained, the only two Italian-speaking actors in the film were the two children. And um, so they were dubbed. Uh, Bob was seemingly dubbed by an older woman <laughs> trying to sound like a child. We've posted a video on our Instagram of his best moments. Yeah. Um, watch it. It is disturbing. It is he, absolute he, ridiculousness. He sounds like a... He sounds like a middle-aged woman, but he's dressed like a 60-year-old man. He looks like uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. He does, he does. He looks like Chloe Moretz in the Amsterdam Horror, um, but he also looks like Bjorn from ABBA. Yes. He's, no, he's not the only one who looks like Aberyn no, sort of in this film. No. We did notice that Catriona McCall <laughs> looks like Agnifa from... It's, it is Agni, Agnifa, Agnifa... I think it's Agnifa. Agnifa from ABBA. Uh, her husband looks like um, the, the beardy one from ABBA. Is he Bjorn? No, the blonde one is Bjorn, isn't it? The blonde one yeah. is Bjorn. And then the estate agent looks a bit like Frida. So, very ABBA looking. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Could have been an ABBA biopic. It could have been. Um, but yeah, this 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 child is alarming. Um, he he's probably. Do you not want me to play it? Uh, please do. Shall I play play a nice little clip of him? I hope you're ready for it. Listen, they always do what they want. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come near me. Just bake it a minute or two and then sneak out again. See ya. 
Yeah. Um, that's part of our Best of Bob compilation. Watch the full thing for an amazing scream. Um, <laughs> but, but that's but, meant to be the voice of a child. That's meant to be an eight-year-old child. Eight-year-old boy. And, and the thing is, he, he's... It's weird. It's really hard to explain because not only does he dress like an old man, he acts like an old man, and it's really weird to watch because they have him like asking his mum for candy, and they have him like constantly playing with this fucking racing car. <laughs> and I mean, uh, can we put him in gay icon territory with his pink gun? Because he grabs a fucking his babysitters in the basements. You know, he, she gets decapitated, but before this. He picks up a fucking monkey, um, who he calls Yogi. Okay, Yogi is a fucking bear, not a monkey, you idiot. And he also picks up a pink cowboy gun and goes to the basement to save her. This is fucking ridiculous. And it, <laughs> it's just, and then obviously because the actor isn't saying any of this in English. Yeah, this is what makes it even worse. The lips don't match the noises that are coming out. And there are, I swear there are a few parts of the film where his lips aren't even moving. Yeah, yeah. And this voice is coming out. And I, I sat there and I was like, well, who's making the noises? I'm pretty sure 90% of this film you can hear Bob. And if he's not talking shit or, you know, just saying random things that just didn't really matter or calling for his mum, he's making racing car noises. Yeah. And these racing car noises go on for Fucking ages. There's one particular scene where his parents are talking in the kitchen. <laughs> and it's, it's a serious conversation. But throughout the whole conversation, <laughs> all you can hear in the background is... <laughs> I mean, jumping mean, jump jump head to my notes, you're absolutely right. It's a scene where they're talking about um, Katrina McCall's alcoholism. Yeah. And depression and, you know, fetch some pills. Yeah. We're getting a little smidge of character development. <laughs> uh, probably the most we've seen in the whole trilogy, really. Um, and all we hear in the background is... Like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, j- jumping ahead to some of, my, some of my notes from within the film, I mean, there's... A scene where they, they they leave the kid alone a lot in this film. They couldn't give a shit what yeah. happens to him. Like the he's in danger at one point, and Catherine McCall really takes the time to save him. She does. Um, and there's a scene where they they go to I think they go to the estate agents, and he's left in the car. <laughs> I've all I've got written down is, "Will you get me some candy?" Oh. Asks the forty year old sounding kid <laughs> playing with a car. <laughs> And then there's another one with the with the bat scene. Um, his dad runs in front of him with a bat attached to his hand, and he says, "Daddy, Daddy, what's the matter? What's the matter? <laughs> yes, bat like, eating his hand." Um, and, and of course, you know when when um, Anne's in the basement, the babysitter, <laughs> he fucking gets up in the middle of the night, goes down, and he's like, "Anne, Mummy says you're not dead. Is that true?" Yeah. <laughs> But then when he screams as well... Oh, when he screams screams like a, a middle-aged woman. Yeah. Um, so I, I absolutely think that the voice dubbing is by an older woman. Yeah. Rather than an actual yeah. child. Um, it's ridiculous. And it moves the film to trash-to-piece territory. And yeah. 
if uh, and now I've never watched this in Italian. I mean, who the fuck wants to when you can listen to that shit? Um, I feel like if you watch this film in Italian, you might be able to take it seriously a little more without that ridiculous voice. Uh, potentially. Even I mean, though the actor, film. but even the actor said that his Italian voice wasn't his voice. Oh. So, I mean, who knows? Imagine that voice in Italian. Oh Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ! But yeah, so that's that. That's our section on Bob. Um, <laughs> would you like to tell us about Bob's story now? Yes, this is House by the Cemetery. Which starts with tits. It does. So it's the first bit of actual nudity we get in these, apart from the uh, naked guys. Ass crack. Ass crack in uh, the beyond, the the naked zombies, because mm-hmm. they're about to have their autopsy. Um, but this is our first bit of uh, female nudity. Uh, a woman, played by Daniela Doria, is in an abandoned house looking for her boyfriend. After and she's putting her top on for he's like gone, but she's yeah. still got her top off. And this when I say abandoned house, I mean there's cobwebs everywhere. It's filthy, you know. You wouldn't really go there for a little lovers. Tryst, no, would you? no, it wasn't very romantic. No. Um, after she discovers his body stabbed with scissors, she is stabbed in the head with a French knife, and her body is dragged through a cellar door. Uh, this is probably this is actually the probably the iconic death yeah. in the film. Yeah, this is the one that really scared me when I was younger. But this is the one that was used in the advertising, yeah. and this is so uh, it gets it out of the way straight away because she's sort of stabbed in the back of the head, but it goes all the way through, and the knife comes out her mouth, mm-hmm. which makes me feel sick. I hate <laughs> the idea of like, um, like knives like in the mouth, like might get caught between the teeth. Oh, it makes me feel sick. Um, so, yeah, great great kill yeah. to start the film off. In New York City, Bob, played by Giovanni Threza, and his parents, Norman and Lucy Boyle, played by Paolo Malco and Catriona McCall. Uh, Catriona McCall is sporting a different kind of hair oh, in this film. Oh, she is giving us waves for days. She, yeah, she is giving... And it's probably where the whole ABBA thing came from, actually. She's giving... Ag- Ag- Agnifa in The Winner Takes It All. She is. <laughs> she, she really is. Um, but they're moving into the same house. <gasps> Norman's ex-colleague, Dr. Peterson, who murdered his mistress before committing suicide, was the previous owner. The boils are to stay there whilst Norman researches old houses. Exciting <laughs> <laughs> career. And, <laughs> as his mother packs... Bob looks at a photograph of a house and notices a girl in it. In New Whitby, Boston, Bob waits in his parents' car while they collect the house keys. The girl from the photograph appears across the street. The girl, called May, played by Sylvia Colatina, whom only Bob can see, warns him to stay away from the house. But he has. Parents never listen. Parents never listen. In the real estate... No, it's one Parents never listen! <laughs> In the real estate office, Mrs. Gittleson, played by Dagmar Lysander, is annoyed when her colleague hands the couple the Freudstein keys. She insists it is called Oak Mansion and promises to find the Boyles a babysitter. Okay, so one thing is... Well, two things, actually. Two things. Number one, why do they 
never question the fact that he keeps calling the Freudstein keys. <laughs> they know it, it's a the big reveal later on is this Dr. Freudstein. He says Freudstein in front of him twice. Yeah. And they never really question it. They're like, well, who's this Freudstein character? You know, clearly, the way he says it, there's clearly some story there. Yeah. Um, but they just kind of ignore it. Also, no, I'm not being funny. I don't want to shame her or anything. Uh, but Catriona McCall's character, she doesn't work. So what does she need a babysitter for? <laughs> I, I feel, you know, I feel like this poor babysitter... Spoiler alert, ends up getting a head cut off for no reason because they didn't really need a babysitter. What? When do we first see the babysitter and what form does she appear in? So, the babysitter we see as a mannequin. Who does she look like? She looks like Brooke Shields. <laughs> Slash Cara Delevingne. Yeah, Cara Delevingne. Um, but now this is something that makes no sense to me. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> Um, so May is at a shop window and she sees this mannequin and the mannequin looks like Brooke Shields and the mannequin gets its head cut off and like there's a bloody mannequin head. Um, and then later on when we're introduced to, is it Anna? Mm -hmm. Anna, the babysitter or Anne, the babysitter, excuse me, um, she we keep getting flashes towards this mannequin head and then Anne's face we're like yeah oh okay we get it <laughs> we're meant to be the same person still makes absolutely no sense though makes no sense it it, it has nothing to do with the story does it no like we we don't know who I mean, this Anne person it, is. I feel kind of sorry for May because I mean she's also got a shitty voice she also looks about 60 years old and she's a psychic queen but she's just constantly overshadowed by Bob true <laughs> But Oak Mansion is in a poor state of repair. The cellar door is locked and nailed shut. A woman arrives and introduces herself as Anne, the babysitter. That night, Norman hears noises and finds Anne unblocking the cellar door. The next day... So the thing is, we're, we're, like, we're led to believe that Anne is something to do with everything that's going... You know? Like, Anne um, isn't who she's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what sort of it's leading to because Anne doesn't really talk to um, whatever the mum's name is. What's the mum's name? <laughs> Lucy. Lucy, that's it. Um, so she doesn't really talk to Lucy. She's a bit of a weirdo. Um, she kind of appeared out of nowhere. She was never really introduced. It was kind of like the, the estate agent was like, I'll find you a babysitter. But the estate agent doesn't actually introduce the babysitter. She just sort of appears and says, hi, I'm your babysitter. You know? Yeah. So we're led to believe that she's something to do with the weirdness that's going on in the house. Yeah, everyone's a little weird in this film. I mean, the, the husband, there's one point he says he has to go away for business and he literally stays in the same place and just does research yeah, in another part of town. But no, it's he... not. No, that's New York. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's a lot the exact same as where they were before. Yeah. Lucy buys groceries from Woolworths. She does, yeah. Yeah, who can you trust in this film? But the only time... But the thing is, and bringing it back, to so Lucy and her husband never actually leave the house together. No. So there's absolutely no reason for a babysitter. You wanted romance in the beyond, you ain't going to fucking find any here. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and they're married. 
Uh, that night, Norman hears noises and finds Anne unblocking the cellar door. The next day, Norman goes to the library to peruse Peterson's material. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Perusing Peterson's materials. Uh, the chief librarian, Mr. Wheatley, appears to recognise him, but Norman claims he is mistaken. The assistant librarian, Daniel Douglas, then informs Norman that Peterson conducted private research at the house. He studied records of area disappearances and other demographic data. May shows Bob a tombstone on the ground marked Mary Freudstein and says she is not really buried there. No idea what that means. Indoors, Lucy finds the tombstone of Jacob Tess Freudstein okay, while sorry, sweeping the hallway. Sorry, I, I do apologise to interrupt. Um, but you know the graveyard scene that yeah. you just mentioned? That's followed by another fucking weird thing with that little weirdo where he says that his mum thinks he's having naps. This, again, going back to his age, this kid has scheduled naps. <laughs> That's what babies do. How old is he fucking meant to is be? That, he should kind of should be in school. If the actor's yeah, why ends, is he never in school? He should be in school. <laughs> Continue, you know, it's just really bugged me that he had scheduled naps. Scheduled naps at eight years old. <laughs> when Norman returns, he reassures her that some older... Catriona McCall, in the interview, said that she was like... Uh, I think she was 26 at the time the film was released. Yeah. So she said she was a bit confused about how old the kids should be. <laughs> So, well, I mean, if she had the kid young, then reasonably, yeah, I suppose, you know, it's it's not biologically impossible, but it's kind of like she just didn't really know how old the kid was meant to be. <laughs> uh, when Norman returns, he reassures her that some older houses have indoor tombs because of the hard, wintry ground. Yeah, it is a bit weird. I mean, I... I would never have thought there would be a tombstone right in the middle of the living room <laughs> with a rug over it. Um, <laughs> Norman opens the cellar door and walks down the stairs only to be attacked by a bat, which won't let go until he stabs it repeatedly. Very, very fake looking bat. Let's be fair yeah. here. You know, I don't understand how Catriona McCall got over her fear of bats because of this stuffed bat. <laughs> <laughs> it goes into her hair at one point, um, but ends up, you know, latching on to her husband's hand for ages. And then he starts stabbing at it. <laughs> and that's when Bob's like, what's wrong, daddy? It's a fucking massive bat attached to his hand. <laughs> Spooked, the family drives down to the real estate office and demands to be rehoused. But are told it will be a few days before they can move. And they seem pretty happy with this, actually. They don't question it afterwards. No. <laughs> they don't say, actually, shouldn't we be moved out by now? Uh, while the Boyles are at the hospital to treat Norman's injuries from the bat, Mrs. Gittleson arrives at the house to tell them of a new property. Letting herself in, knows the bitch that she is, she stands over the Freudstein tombstone, which cracks apart, pinning her ankle. A figure emerges, stabs her in the neck with a fireplace poker and drags her into the cellar. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, considering Fulci cut part mm. of it, it's still really quite it bloody. Is. Yeah. Um, this film, more than the other two, has um, giallo influences, yeah. I feel. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, uh, it's a, essentially a supernatural killer. Mm. Um, it's not... 
I don't think it's not really treated as a uh, murder mystery like a giallo would be or a slasher film. No, it's like I said at the start of the episode, it's very much like a, a home invasion film, but just yeah. in reverse. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's um, it's like Castle Freak. Yeah. Where somebody moves into somewhere and there's already an entity there. Yeah, like Texas Chainsaw 3D. Anyway, <laughs> we don't talk about Texas Chainsaw 3D. Um, the next morning, Lucy finds Anne cleaning a bloodstain on the kitchen floor. Anne eludes Lucy's questions about the stain. So again, we think Anne's part of... Uh, yeah. and something and it's never explained no. over coffee Norman tells Lucy that he's discovered that Freudstein was a Victorian surgeon who conducted illegal experiments Norman must travel to New York to research Freudstein on the way Norman visits the library and finds an audio cassette of Peterson's which documents Peterson's increasing madness and reveals what he discovered about Freudstein Norman destroys the cassette by dropping it into a furnace pipe. Um, yeah, which is in the middle of the library. So he's putting like this plastic, burning plastic in the middle of the fucking library. <laughs> At the house, Anne goes to the cellar looking for Bob and hears childlike sobbing sounds. Freudstein decapitates her after slashing her throat. Bob sees Anne's head and exits screaming. So this is where he grabs his gun to help her. <laughs> Uh, his pink fake gun and his teddy bear to help, but it's it's hilarious. It's it's hilarious actually because it's so stupid. He makes his way down the stairs and then Anne's head um, rolls down the stairs and he he screams like a middle aged woman and then runs up the stairs. <laughs> that evening, Bob returns to the cellar looking for Anne but gets locked in. Lucy hears Bob's cries and tries to open the cellar door. Uh, she takes a long time. <laughs> she takes a very long time. I think she was uh, disappointed when she finally opened it. Yeah. Uh, when she cannot open it... Oh, it's Norman. I opened it in the end. When she, oh, yeah, even worse. When she cannot open it, Norman returns and hacks the door with a hatchet. <laughs> the rotting right hand of Freudstein appears and restrains Bob against the door as the hatchet chops through it. One of Norman's axe blows through the door, severs the ghoul's seemingly normal left hand, and he staggers back down the stairs. Norman and Lucy finally get into the cellar, which contains several mutilated bodies, including Anne, Mrs. Gittleson, and the couple from the beginning of the film. Um, it also includes some surgical equipment and a slab. Freudstein is a living corpse with rotting flesh. Norman tells Lucy that the 150-year-old Freudstein lives by using his victim's parts to regenerate blood cells. Norman attacks Freudstein, but the ghoul twists the hatchet away. Grabbing a knife from the slab, Norman stabs Freudstein, causing rotten flesh and maggots to ooze out of his old lab coat. That's a great, that's a really yeah. gruesome scene. Uh, and for one take, that's really good. Yeah. Uh, Freudstein grabs Norman and rips open his throat. Lucy and Bob climb a ladder leading to the underside of the cracked tombstone. Lucy strains to shift the stone, but Freudstein grabs her and drags her down the stairs, killing her by ramming her head into the uh, concrete floor. Uh, Lucy's a fucking wimp. Like, <laughs> I sat there and I was like, Catriona McCall, you, you know, because she's in these three films, we see her as a bit of a sleigh queen, mm. don't we? Yeah. Um, but 
particularly in this film, she is a right wimp. She just kind of lets it happen, don't she? Yeah. She doesn't fight back or anything like that. It's it's different because, you know, I suppose we watch so many slasher films and American horror films that we expect every woman to be a final girl. <laughs> Uh, in that sense, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, it's disappointing when she became a bit of a Barbara. But the thing is, this this singing could have been over quicker than it was anyway. She didn't need to struggle. She didn't need to die. Because what happens next? <laughs> As Freudstein advances up the ladder, Bob strains to escape, but manages to get his fat head through. <laughs> he fucking gets his fat head. Yeah. And his 100-year-old body through that fucking crack. Uh, with not a lot of effort, really. Not really. I mean, his... The the thing is, the child's head looks a lot bigger because there's a lot of hair going on. Um, but he, he strains a little bit, but then manages to get through. So it's he like, that in the first place. Yeah. Because that's <laughs> what Lucy was trying to do, get him through... Well, she was trying to open the crack, but to get him through first. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that Lucy didn't actually have to strain... Because he could get through. He just never tried. Um, That's his revenge for when she took like 20 minutes to try and save him. As Freudstein grabs Bob's leg, he is suddenly pulled upwards by May. With uh, with May is her mother, Mary Freudstein. He's just watched both his parents murdered. He's pulled out there by her and she's like, May! It's like, Bob! And they're so happy. They are. <laughs> Mary Freudstein tells them it's time to leave. Mrs. Freudstein leads <clears throat> May and Bob down the wintry grove into an apparent ghost world. Absolutely makes no fucking sense. <laughs> no sense whatsoever. So I'm assuming Bob... I'm assuming his parents are dead and Bob's a ghost at the end and Dr. Freudstein's just left down there. Um, Anne had absolutely nothing to do with anything. The whole mannequin thing, I have no idea what that was about. Um, she was suspicious for absolutely... She was just a weirdo. She wasn't even suspicious. She just turned out to be a bit weird. I got her head cut off in the end. It, it, it's uh, it's a film that's a lot of fun. Um, sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for not. Um, it's, uh, I think the, whole, the trilogy as a whole is essential viewing. Oh, absolutely. I would absolutely say... Uh, if you're a horror fan, you need to watch the trilogy. Yeah. My ranking uh, of the films would be the Beyond City and House. And um, you'd be correct. So, uh, yeah, same. You'll probably the exact same. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they're just all... They're all great. They, I mean, they, you know, there is a bit of a drop of quality in House by the Cemetery, but it's still a good film. It's still worth watching. It's the kind of horror films that only Italians could do. Yeah. And more specifically, the kind of horror films that only Lucio Fulci could do. And even more specifically, the only kind of horror films that could be released in the 80s. Yes. I mean, you you, you probably get, you know, you probably get your homage here and there to these films nowadays. You'd never be able to recreate that. No, no. It's the same reason I love Demons so much. It's because it is the ultimate 80s horror film. It is, it is the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, so that's the Gates of Hell trilogy. Um, three great films that we highly recommend. Um, available somewhere. They've all been released on Blu-ray. Um, it should be quite easy to get a hold of if you want to check them out. I swear one of them's on Prime. They probably are. You, everything's on the deep, dark depths of Prime. 
<laughs> yeah. 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 Prime does have some really random films. So, if you are listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, like, and follow on everything else. Uh, talk to us on social media with Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. I am Gaz 92 on that box, gazmo 205 on Instagram, and gazcruise 92 on Twitter. I am chrisbarker823 on Instagram, letterboxd, and Twitter. And next week, we'll be back with a special guest. Yes, uh, one of my good, 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 good friends, Kira, will be joining us. And what film are we watching? We will be watching the 90s Trash the Piece. It's, it's Trash the Piece Gold. It is Creatures from the Abyss. That is on YouTube for, in full. If anyone would like to watch it prior, um, it, it is bizarre. It, it, it has to be seen to be believed. I haven't seen it. Gary has. So I'm really looking forward to watching it. Yeah. And uh, Kira is a trash cinema aficionado. Yes. A bit like ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to have a great time discussing. Yes, absolutely. So we will see you same time, same place next week. Bye.